This podcast is brought to you by Alaska Air Cargo. You just can't ship seafood any fresher. Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we discuss the most interesting and compelling seafood news of the week. I'm Drew Cherry, Editorial Director of Interfish. I am joined today by John Fiorillo, Executive Editor, Rachel Sapin, Reporter here in Seattle, and John Evans, Correspondent down in Sao Paulo. Hello, everybody. Hello there, Hello. from Brazil. So, uh, we have a pretty interesting lineup of things to talk about this week. Um, we actually got uh, out of the office a bit, and um, not the usual uh, trips for us. Um, two interesting ones that, uh, that we uh, um, undertook here from the Seattle office, and John, I'll let you start. You uh, got an invitation from Cargill uh, to go visit... Uh, one of their operations in Montana, of all places. Uh, what are they doing that has anything to do with aquaculture in the landlocked state of Montana? Well, they're doing some pretty interesting stuff, actually. So Cargill invited uh, Intrafish to come see their new facility that they opened uh, last October in Great Falls, Montana, which is roughly in the middle of the state, about... Uh, 60,000 um, population or so. So it's, you know, it's a small town, so to speak. Um, so what they're trying to do is Cargill's working to find a, a sustainable plant-based alternative to using forage fish, such as anchovies, to produce fish oil for, for uh, salmon feed and shrimp feed. So they're, they're working with the local farmers there to use to rent part of their land to test these plants which they're they're canola plants like canola oil that you use in your home however these plants have been genetically modified to produce omega-3 so um they've been at it for a little while and they've successfully created some hybrids that are ready to go so to speak from a commercial uh, point of view and now they'll look to ramp that up to a degree that they can produce you know sizable amounts of oil to um, kind of replace or be an alternative to wild capture uh, fish which we know are you know capped out as far as harvest and um, the the need the need to find alternatives is pressing because aquaculture is growing um, steadily around the world. Have they have they done any trials on on this in terms of? Uh, they have. Yeah. They, okay. They've um, they've used the oil uh, in some feed uh, in Chile, and um, the results were comparable, almost exactly to what uh, what they would you know what the um, fish oil would be from from wild capture fish so they were um, very um, optimistic about what they saw in chile so is there any in in terms of time to to market and and when aquaculture producers might be able to um, start adding this to their feed in kind of a commercial uh scale do you have any any timeline or sense of that yeah, no, I, I don't think that's something that can be uh, nailed down at this point. There's, 
You know, it's interesting in Montana. So those farmers there have traditionally grown wheat and barley, which uh, were sold to beer manufacturers like Anheuser-Busch. But the beer manufacturers decided several years ago to change the way those contracts were done and basically um, took that business away from from those farmers. So the farmers have been looking for alternatives and canola oil and all these so-called pulses like peas and things that are being used as uh, alternatives to animal protein, that those those um, crops are now being um, transplanted where where the wheat and barley once uh, served. So um, there's there's a big change going on in Montana, and uh, you know to ramp up to a commercial um, production will take a little bit of time, but you know it, it's not far off. It's not like you know 20 years from now or 10 years from now. It's it's assuming everything goes as planned, it's in the next few years where they start to commercially produce this. So, so you were, I mean, you were down there with actual uh, farmers there in, in Montana and kicking up your feet with them and barbecuing. Um, are they aware of, of the aquaculture sector and just how big it is? You know, I, I got the sense just by listening to all the presentations during the day and talking to everybody there that the farmers were not aware um, when this all started. But um, Cargill has done an amazing job of just bringing the farming community in and the leaders, uh, the the local leaders, to continue to educate them about, you know, why are you growing canola oil? How is that going to make a fish? You know, that type of yeah, it's abstract until you really understand it. So um, I think the farmers in that region do do understand this now, and they're very excited about it. And there's also a, a, a shift going on in that farming community where a lot of the farmers are older generation, but um, their, their children are now taking over the farms, and the younger farmers are much more interested in trying new crops and, and going in different directions. I mean, largely out of necessity because the wheat and barley thing is pretty much um, dried up for them. Okay. Well, that is going to be really interesting to watch, and it's, um, you know, to see the efforts that these feed companies are putting into finding alternatives is pretty impressive. Um, and yeah, we've been covering this a lot. Um, John Evans, uh, you've certainly put a lot of effort into this for, for the report that you're working on. So, um, more on that to come. Um, but a shift from Montana, uh, over to the coast, the Pacific coast. Um, Rachel, tell us a bit about your time visiting, uh, BC. You went to Marine Harvest, uh, net pens uh, up there, as well as uh, one of their freshwater hatcheries. So um, give us your impression of what's uh, happening there on the ground uh, in the BC salmon farming industry. Yeah, um, I visited Marine Harvest uh, Doll Rimple freshwater hatchery in Campbell River, British Columbia. Um, just a beautiful part of the world um, and Canada. But yeah, I went to see, it's their uh, newest recirculating aquaculture system. Um, in 2015, uh, it was part of a $40 million investment um, they took on to kind of get better uh, recirculating aquaculture system in place. Um, and yeah, it was a beautiful, clean 
facility. Um, they harvest he's around 600,000 kilos of Atlantic salmon smolts per year. So there's just like millions of dollars in <laughs> this uh, facility. And it just surprised me that it was, you know, very organized, not really smelly. I expected it to smell more and it really didn't. Um, <laughs> and just, uh, you know, it's, it's a well-run operation. I mean, very scientific. Um, and yeah, I definitely am more interested in eating farm salmon after visiting. <laughs> um, and, and so just, just for clarity for the, for the listeners, I'm, um, Rachel, you're relatively new to, uh, covering the seafood sector. Um, this is your first uh, farmed uh, salmon uh, farm visit. So, any kind of initial impressions? Just you've been covering it for for quite a while, um, for for several months now. But just putting your feet on the ground, was there anything that was uh, kind of surprising to you? Um, you know, based on uh, what you saw there. I I guess I didn't realize it was um, such a scientific process. Uh, you know, they were just talking about how much effort they put into raising the smolts and, you know, how they're able to get the, you know, perfect combination of, you know, this, this DNA of fish and that. And I don't know, I just, I was surprised by just how, how they structure it from the beginning. I just didn't realize that they had so much control over this fish's entire life and just the fact that they you know, are checking all the time for diseases and the vaccinations. Like, you know, I, I don't even know if, if I visited, you know, a chicken processing plant or a beef processing plant, I don't think I would have, you know, felt the same kind of comfort with the process that I did seeing a, uh, a farm. Yeah. Well that, uh, yeah, it's, it's only, um, going to get more and more interesting, I think, as you, as you cover it, um, and certainly I think when I go back to when I started at Intrafish, uh, wow, a long, long time ago, um, I kind of came to it from understanding the wild salmon sector as well. And you get a, you know, you, you do uh, develop some understanding, uh, or at least, um, I don't know the empathy is the right word, maybe it is, um, of, of opponents of salmon farming if they've never been on a on a salmon farm you can see why they have these uh, misconceptions because um if you're just looking online or you know uh um, reading um sort of consumer reports on uh salmon farming it's certainly kind of a shock compared to what you would see on uh most of these modern farms and it's just it's logical to remember the amount the sheer amount of money that's being uh, that's being made um, at these uh, at these operations. You know, they they don't want to make mistakes. They can't afford to make mistakes, whether it's because they need the social license to do it, um, and just just the frank finances. You know, all those uh, smolt that are swimming around uh, end up uh, as full size salmon, and each one ends up being worth a lot, a lot of money. Um, I'm just going to shift right. a bit since we're we're talking on the uh, financial side. Um, John, uh, our investor forum was, uh, not, uh, that long ago, a couple of months ago. Um, we got another one coming up in London on September 13th. So, uh, we'll tell you a little bit of, uh, information about that at the end of the show. 
uh, and where to go to register. But um, just just some quick impressions, John, of, of what you uh, what you saw. All the uh, salmon farming companies that presented just gave you know these eye popping results. But was there any kind of trends that you saw developing in terms of the investment? Uh, sector in seafood and uh, where we might see some movement? Well, I mean, the obvious thing I saw over and over and over again was, uh, you know, talk about land-based and uh, pumping money into land-based uh, aquaculture, salmon in particular. So um, I, I would say that was the overall theme that I noticed. Yeah, and I think, you know, the other thing, too, it, absolutely, especially when you saw Atlantic Sapphire getting up there, and we certainly hit it on a lot in our, our panel debate. Um, and it, it was interesting, you know, I think we, we challenged them on some of those assumptions um, and uh, and really um, kind of pressed them on it. I think, I think lenders are excited. Um, Atlantic Sapphire was able to raise a lot of money on the, uh, on the public markets. But they're also leery too, and um, you can see you can see why that is. Um, there's a, there's certainly a lot of uh, uh, things that can potentially go wrong as well. Um, so that was uh, it'll be interesting to watch and, and uh, see how that develops. Um, also, and this is going to segue nicely into our next uh, little point of discussion. But there was a lot more discussion on shrimp. Um, than there than there has been. I think there's a lot more chatter around investment in shrimp. Uh, I think that sector is beginning to um, to develop some some levels of stability. Although we'll, we'll counter that in just a moment with the current political situation that's going on. Um, but the the sector is developing some stability and some level of rationalization that might uh, might lead to. Uh, might lead to some acquisitions um, and to some consolidation here in the future. So I think that was uh, something that became uh, pretty apparent, certainly on the feed side, where uh, a lot of energy is being put into that. Um, but again, more on that in, in a minute. We'll tell you guys how to uh, how to register for the London Forum uh, in, uh, in a little bit more detail about that. Um, okay, shifting over to shrimp. Um, yeah, we we have to mention Trump. It seems like almost in every podcast, um, and a lot happened even between the last time we taped. Um, now the the uh, threats, the um, plans to institute tariffs on uh, Chinese seafood imports, uh, obviously is is an earthquake for the global sector. Um, John, you've written a, a couple of uh, stories on this in terms of how it might impact uh, both the U.S. market and how producers uh, in other parts of the world, notably Brazil, but um, you know possibly other areas, might stand to gain and change their production and their strategy based on it. That's right. Um, increasingly, as um, the uh, seafood uh um, market or seafood world becomes the the, the bat, a, a battleground in the um, in the Trump tariff uh, story. Um, yeah, I mean, I, as you said, I've written two or three different pieces. Um, um, the first one uh, recently was uh, after speaking to the uh, Little Bay Lobster Company in New Hampshire, um, a company that was um, shipping around fifty thousand pounds a week uh, and more than half of its lobsters to China. Um, and as the uh, the boss there said to me, uh, Jonathan, um, 
Shaftmaster, it's a situation that's not going to turn around very quickly, particularly as, you know, the lobster business isn't high on the um, the list of priorities of the Trump administration in terms of um, changing tariffs for aluminium or al aluminium uh, and steel. Um, so it, there's a sort of... Um, there's a resignation amongst um, smaller producers in that area, particularly. Um, and um, elsewhere, uh, yeah, I mean, staying in, in North America, uh, Canada's highliner, it's vow vowing to do what it can do to uh, help consumers manage uh, any impact from the, uh, the simmering trade disputes between uh, the United States and uh, China. Um, I mean, that was in, an in interesting a... report that came out from the analyst uh, because they were. It, it was kind of the first. It, it gave the industry, I think, a a quasi-transparent look into what the actual financial impact might be on uh, a company. Because Highliner's business model um, certainly fits in line with what some of the other major frozen food companies in. Uh, North America would face, but I mean, it was it was significant the amount of uh, the amount of hit that the that this uh, analysis estimated Highliner could take. Yeah, it was saying up to um, up to, in the worst case scenario, it was saying up to uh, twenty four uh, million dollars, if I've got my uh, figures correct. Um, but the um, that's based on um, uh, the two hundred. Um, that's based on the package of measures uh, put through there. But um, Highliner itself says it's working to um, to offset that, or will work to offset with that with its customers. Twenty-four million dollars, uh, uh, twenty-point-five million euros in in the in the worst um, case uh, scenarios, as I uh, as I mentioned. Yeah. So. Um, Yes, I mean it, it's uh, it certainly brought home um, the effects of uh, of what's going on uh, at the moment, particularly with um, Highliner, you know, reliant on uh, Chinese imports of uh, of uh, Pacific um, whitefish and um, you know other products like that. Yeah, that it should be interesting to uh, to see how it impacts other companies as well. But it's it's um, yeah, like I said, it's, it's going to be seismic around the around the world if all this plays out the way we think it is. As you mentioned, Drew, as well, there are um, effects being felt elsewhere. I mean, um, it's as as always, there's all, there are winners and losers, and the the Brazilian industry is looking to. Um, uh, Get the best out of this for itself by um, uh, inc increasing, doubling, if possible, um, tilapia exports uh, to uh, the United States. Um, mainly in the fresh area, it has to be said, um, because they, they they feel they don't they won't be able to compete still with China, despite the 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 uh, the ten percent uh, tariff. But to the companies like Genesis, based in Sao Paulo, they already fly out. Um, consignments of uh, fresh tilapia fillet to the United States and um, yeah uh, so that, that they're looking to do that over the next uh, 12 months particularly in, in terms of the exchange rate as well which has been polit uh, particularly favorable for them between uh, 370 and 390 to the dollar may even with the uh, 
presidential election in Brazil become a little bit more volatile in the coming months and, and move towards $4 as it previously has in election years? Well, looking uh, domestically, so um, Rachel, you talked to uh, some domestic shrimp producers here. Um, what's their take on it? Are they uh, celebrating these tariffs? I mean, is there any any sense that they feel like this is uh, this is going to be a big change in in their fortunes? Well, the thing is, they are celebrating the tariffs, um, at least the U.S. Uh, shrimp producers, but it doesn't necessarily affect them that China is being targeted. Um, I spoke with one person, uh, David Chauvin, of, uh, who owns a seafood company in Louisiana, and he said that, you know, they don't really compete with China for shrimp imports anymore. Um, they actually, India is who he said is particularly devastating um, fisheries in the U.S., but he likes what Trump is doing in general, I guess, and he's hoping that uh, the president will extend a similar tariff to India. Um, so it's interesting. It's not affecting him in a good way, necessarily. Um, it's even actually affecting some of his company's uh, fuel costs and expenses, which he says yeah. make up 55% of his expenses. <laughs> that he said we're up 55% this year over this time last year due to the trade war. So he's actually being negatively impacted um, yeah. by this trade war, but he still supports Trump. Uh, that's interesting. Um, John, I have a feeling you're going to want to weigh in on this. You've had a lot to say over the years on uh, on tariffs and uh, and trade uh, trade duties on, on imports um, that have been encouraged by domestic shrimp producers. <laughs> yes, I have. Let me, let me just um, lay that trap for you to walk right into. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I mean, I think it's clear to anybody who pays attention to this, they can slap all the anti-duty or anti-dumping duties or these new tariffs, anything they want on these imports, but that is not going to be the answer for challenges to the U.S. Gulf shrimp industry. Um, I actually think they've done a, a very good job in the last few years of repositioning their product as a premium product and got out of uh, the idea that they could fight a commodity war with uh, you know, shrimp imported from India, China, wherever wherever you want to say. It's just, it's just not going to, they're never going to win that war. So um, this latest round of events is, uh, you know, you could argue it may be helpful to some degree, but, you know, Rachel, Rachel kind of dissected that for us. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's not much to say. I, it's it's certainly not going to change the um, fortunes of the U.S. Gulf of Mexico shrimp industry in any significant way. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know that it's uh, it's going to end up um end up helping um, domestic producers. Like you said, Rachel, I mean, you, there's so many other factors and it's all so interconnected that um, I'm just not sure. You know, I'm just not sure that uh, that there's going to be any, uh, any direct input. I know the rhetoric is welcomed, um, the protectionist rhetoric, but I think that's, um, you know, when, when you look at it, John, like you were just saying, it's, it's, it's just... Um, 
these species would become such a uh, high value commodity that the odds are that the consumption would uh, would fall through the fall through the floor. Um, and cause... Yeah, and I hope. Uh, I'm sorry to step on you, but I hope it doesn't distract uh, the Gulf uh, shrimp guys into moving away from what they've been doing, which is, as I said earlier, I, I think is is fairly effective. They've repositioned the product. It's a great product. It's, you know, I, I mean, we could have this debate, but it's better than a lot of the imported shrimp from Asia from a texture. Uh, taste point of view and, and those types of consumer um, attributes. So I hope this doesn't, you know, make them take their eye off that ball because that's where they really need to continue, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, as I said, I'm, I'm going to shift gears and just do a quick, uh, quick plug, folks, on uh, the London Seafood Investor Forum that's coming up on September 13th. Um, it's going to be a, another fantastic lineup. It's it's being done with our partner DNB um, there in central London. Um, it, it, it's got um, pretty much every major uh, top C-suite executive from every major salmon farming company. So um, this is the sector that's booming. This is the sector that's innovating the most in the in the aquaculture and um, you might argue in the agriculture industry. Uh, in full, uh, but we have uh, Salmonas Kamanchaka, uh, Ricardo Garcia, we have Charles Hustlin from Norway Royal Salmon, uh, Regan Jakobsen of Baca Frost, Andreas Kvame of Greek Seafood, uh, Ola Eric Leroy, Chairman of Marine Harvest, uh, Shur Malm, the CFO of Leroy, of Leroy Seafood, uh, and we have Malcolm Pye, the CEO of Benchmark Holdings, uh, oh, as well as uh, Johan Andreasen, who will be really interesting, um, talking about Atlantic Sapphire and their uh, and their uh, operations. So you can visit us on intrafish.com and you can find more about that event. Uh, if you uh, click on our coverage in our uh, previews of the event, uh, there's places to register there. And I think the early bird's still open, but uh, I'm not fully sure. But anyway, uh, get signed up. There's limited seating on that and uh, you don't want to miss it. Um, these events tend to attract a fantastic set of investors uh, and deals do get done there. So um uh yeah plug finished there and that wraps up this edition of the interfish podcast remember you can reach out to us on social media linkedin twitter facebook uh and you can get us at editorial at intrafish.com if you have any tips suggestions complaints we're happy to hear it all uh best way, place to keep up with us though is uh, on intrafish.com we're publishing seafood news around the clock from offices in Europe, in the Americas, in Asia. And if you go to our menu tab and click on newsletters, you can find a wide array of newsletters to suit your needs, regardless of your topic of interest or your time zone. And again, if you're listening to us on iTunes, please take the time to uh, rate this podcast. It helps people find us and it uh, helps give us some feedback on how we can improve. That's it for this week. Talk to you next time.